morning, we praise God for this time of worship as we come together to praise His name. Uh, let's uh, commit this time to the Lord as we enter into our third Sunday of the Lent season. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and gracious Redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen. Many of you uh, might be familiar here with the three-generation rule for family wealth. Anybody familiar with that? The three-generation rule for family wealth? It's, um, it's just like a general rule of thumb, right? That, um, uh, you know, if, if the first generation builds up the wealth, the second generation maintains it, third generation loses it, right? So it's not true every time, but obviously um, it's just a general observation uh, why is that so? Well, um, often it's the first generation that has the pioneering spirit, right? The business acumen, the entrepreneurial drive, the creativity, the perseverance. Um, somehow the second generation, they, um, you know, they don't seem to have that same drive, that same creativity, yeah, even though they may have weakness, their parents doing it. Uh, third generation have no idea at all, right? Of, of the hardship, of the uh, you know, perseverance, the creativity needed. So, you know, they inherit it and... You know, they lose it. Um, I was talking to a brother in Christ from another church, and he, he was, um, you know, he, he, he has built up what I believe to be quite a, a, a successful family business. And I was just remarking to him that day that, um, you know, um, what I understand, a lot of uh, families um, in Singapore with family businesses, the, um, these founders and leaders of these family businesses, they are sending their children to uh, polytechnics to um, enroll in business studies. And, um, you know, just remarking that, um, you know, they, they perhaps had that kind of burden to make sure that, you know, they are able to have a succession going on. They're able to pass their business over to their children. And uh, my take on it, my personal opinion is, um, if you send them to the business school, at least they have some knowledge and basics of business and commerce, even if they may not have the same um, you know, entrepreneurial drive, creativity, perseverance, etc. Of course, first generation business founders, they usually don't have education, right? They don't usually have the formal uh, business studies or, or degree, but um, you send the second generation, the third generation, so that at least they have some tools. Um, and this brother in Christ, who owns and manages this successful family business, he kind of turned and looked at me and said, you know, secession is exactly what he's, you know, he's thinking about, right? It's, it weighs heavily on him. Um, you know, he started to bring his, his son into the business, uh, trying to um, teach him the ropes and say, oh, yeah, you, you kind of teach your son as well. He said, no, no, I ask my people to teach. I don't have patience to teach my own son, right? So, um, so secession is always uh, um, kind of uh, critical. And uh, in a life of faith, we are also aware of passing our faith to our children and to our children's children so that they can continue to grow in their walk with the Lord. And the faith that they have, the faith of our children, our children's children, is not just what they have inherited, of course that's important, but they actually own the faith, right? They, they own the belief in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can perhaps see this three-generational rule or process in David's dynasty. David, a man after God's own heart, the founder of his dynasties, the line of kings, right, whom God promised to bless. We kind of covered the life of David um, over First and Second Samuel, so we know that David lived and fought hard to forge 
a, a secure kingdom with God's faithfulness and grace. As we saw in the introduction to First and Second Kings, Solomon did not just maintain the kingdom he inherited from his father, he actually grew it and brought it to the level of glory, his greatest level of glory or splendor. But only to have the kingdom break apart in the third generation, in the reign of Solomon's son, which we will come to, Rehoboam. But Rehoboam lost part of the kingdom, not so much to mismanagement, although that is the immediate cause. The breakup of the kingdom was actually God's judgment on Solomon because he strayed from God into idolatry in the later part of his life. So idolatry and failure of worship caused the loss of a united kingdom that David built and that Solomon prospered. Basically, as we saw three weeks ago in the introduction to First and Second Kings, everything flows from worship. The question is who or what we worship. If we worship money, then our values, our behavior are shaped by that devotion to making money. If we worship career success, then how we value and treat people is shaped by whether this person can help advance our career or whether that person will be a threat to our career advancement. But true worship leads us to trust in God and to remain faithful to how God wants us to live. So the big idea for today is how we handle wealth reflects how we worship God. Now, it must be said, uh, Solomon started well. His heart was in the right place. Like his father, David, Solomon understood that God put him on the throne to look after and shepherd God's people. And so, as Pastor Shen preached two weeks ago on First on Kings chapter 3, Solomon asked for wisdom. He asked for a wise and discerning heart from God to govern and rule his people. And that prayer pleased God. In response, God not only granted Solomon wisdom, but God promised to Solomon wealth and honor above all, the, above all other kings. So we must first recognize that God chose to bless Solomon with wealth and honor. Solomon's ability to generate and manage wealth is a God-given blessing. We saw in the, the scripture reading earlier, how he kind of set up all this trading um, system, uh, you know, tribute, the systems of tribute was so, uh, Israel at that time was so powerful and influential, the surrounding nations actually gave Solomon tribute uh, every year. So with a, with a wise and discerning heart, Solomon was able to translate this blessing for the benefit of the people. So we see this from 1 Kings chapter 4, Verse 20, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, they were happy. And in verse 25, during Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, lived in, lived in safety, everyone under his, their own vine and under their own fig tree. So this is a picture of Israel's golden age of peace and prosperity unequal in their history. But the picture becomes even more glorious when we come to 1 Kings chapter 10 in our passage for today. Everything in um, Solomon's household were made of gold because as chapter 10 verse 21 tells us, silver was considered as little value. The, the silver was so much 
there was worth nothing. So everything possible in Solomon's household was just made of gold. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 27, we read that um, because you know, silver was so common, um, he must have you know, a vast quantity, he must have accumulated a vast quantity of that metal, gold and silver, but also animals, right? Horses, chariots from the tribute, from the tree. So on the one hand, this speaks of the glory and splendor of the kingdom that Solomon built from what he inherited from his father, David. But at the same time, it's possible to see this very graphic, very vivid descriptions of wealth as maybe red flags, maybe some warning signs that the author of First Kings have subtly put into the narrative to cause readers like us to wonder if all of this are truly, all of it, God's blessing, or whether it should cause concern, whether so much accumulation and attention to wealth can become a stumbling block. Now, to be clear, there is no explicit condemnation of Solomon's wealth in our passage. Solomon is nowhere faulted in 1 Samuel for what he did with the wealth. But the historical books, like 1 and 2 Kings, have a very strong relationship. They are, they, are very, they are very strongly related to the book of Deuteronomy in terms of the values and the belief systems that God expected of his people. In fact, there is an explicit passage in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that contains God's commands, his instructions to the kings of Israel. And when we put Deuteronomy chapter 17 and 1 Kings chapter 10 side by side, it's a remarkable comparison between the description of Solomon's wealth and splendor and what God commanded the kings, how they should live. In fact, it's as if uh, the, the author of 1 Kings chapter 10, uh, first, uh, the author of 1 Kings when he wrote chapter 10, he had uh, you know, the scroll of Deuteronomy chapter 17 right in front of him. For example, we read in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 21, all of King Solomon's goblets were of gold, all the household articles in the palace of forest of Lebanon were pure gold, nothing was made of silver because silver was considered as little value in Solomon's days. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, we read, this is God's instruction to the king, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. In 1 Kings 10, 26, we read that Solomon you know, accumulated chariots, horses, 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses. Furthermore, in verse 28, we read that at least some of Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, this is God's word for the king. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. That means don't go back to Egypt to get more horses. So 1 Kings does not directly criticize Solomon for all of his accumulated wealth. And on one hand, the glory of Solomon's kingdom is a reflection of God's glory and blessing on his people. But taken together with Deuteronomy chapter 17, the question is, how much is too much? Are the seeds of Solomon's downfall already sown right at the height of his glory? 1 Kings chapter 10 describes this unsurpassed glory of Solomon's wealth and kingdom. 
but we're going to see next week at the start of 1 Kings chapter 11, we find the downfall of Solomon, where his heart was led astray by foreign wives. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God also says uh, the king is not to have many wives because they will lead him astray. So maybe it's, no maybe it's not a coincidence that the description of Solomon's downfall comes right after the picture of this exceedingly great wealth and riches. In fairness, we have to keep these two things in tension, right? We have to hold on one hand the real blessings of wealth and honour that came from God, but on the other hand, we have, we have also balanced out the, the need to have a wise and discerning heart to always keep faithful to God above all things. So in terms of application, there are three important aspects of managing wealth in Scripture. First, wisdom that knows your true wealth, your true riches. Second, worship that is uncorrupted by wealth. And third, a wholehearted devotion to God's kingdom. First, wisdom that knows true riches. God-fearing wisdom, that is to say. We need God-fearing wisdom to manage wealth without losing sight of what is truly important. So we've seen earlier how uh, God blesses um, Solomon with wealth and honor because Solomon asked for a wise and discerning heart. So a wise and discerning heart of a king can be entrusted with God's blessings of wealth and provision for the benefit of God's nation. And we have seen that Solomon did demonstrate that wisdom in ushering an era of peace and prosperity for God's people. But how do we consistently apply that wisdom so that God's blessing is always received and used for God's glory and purposes? How do we have the wisdom to know how much is too much? Proverbs 23, verse 4, reading from the uh, New English translation, says this, Do not wear yourself up to become rich. Be wise enough to restrain yourself. So it's part of godly wisdom to restrain, to know how much is enough. Now, for Solomon, because he's the king and representative of the nation, it is true that the wealth and success of the kingdom brings glory to God. And once again, in 1 Kings chapter 3, it is God himself that blessed Solomon with wealth and honor. How much is too much? Here is where wisdom must adhere to God's word or commands. Earlier, we saw God's instructions for the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17. In fact, if you read that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the king, at the beginning of his reign, he's supposed to write down the law himself. He's not supposed to ask his secretary or scribe or whoever to write. He himself, as king, must write the, 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 the law by hand and read it daily so that he will always remember to revere the Lord his God and that his heart will not be exalted above that of his brothers, of his fellow Israelites. So the God-given wisdom to build and manage wealth must be balanced by the God-fearing wisdom to obey God's word. And God's, a God-fearing wisdom to manage wealth is actually to know where your true wealth is. True wealth 
It's only found in our relationship with God. Between living in wealth and choosing to honor and fear God, if you have these two choices before you, through wisdom, we'll give up riches to honor and please God. So when you know your true wealth, when you know that your true source of security is not actually the money, it's actually God, then you will know how much is too much. The best guide is if you earn to a level where you feel you don't need to trust God anymore, you don't need faith, that's probably, you know, that's probably the, the, the sign that you may want to just think about your relationship with God. You will know restrain and you will refrain from chasing after worldly wealth. Um, in the first in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says this about godly contentment. This is the true wealth, right? The true wisdom will know this, that this um, God-centered contentment is actually your true gain. It's, you know, Paul uses a commercial term here, that your contentment in God, if you're rested in God, that's your true profit. That's your true gain. That's your true wealth. Now, godly contentment, does not mean that you don't have to work hard, right? You don't have to save for the future because, you know, obviously that's all part of good stewardship. But it does mean that you know that God is your provider. You are not spent and exhausted with fear, with restlessness, with anxiety, or with greed in chasing after riches. So all of us, you and I, we have to ask ourselves today, how much is too much? Are we striving for worthy wealth or do we actually strive to know and obey God? Now, if our eyes are on God, then we can work diligently, we can save for the future, we can invest, all the while trusting in God's provision. And, I mean, a lot of you can uh, testify to this, a lot of times we will experience God's grace who provides more than enough so that we can be generous in helping others as well. But if our eyes are on the money itself, on wealth itself, then we are in danger of pursuing riches at the expense of our relationship with God, at the expense of our time with family, and expense of serving and blessing others. There will be a restlessness in us that says we don't have enough. Or, you know, we're not successful enough compared to my peers. So we need to pay attention to the state of our soul. We have to be grounded, rested in the love and grace of the Lord. Greed or this strife for riches cannot coexist with a, a soul that is rested in God. And Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? So the first takeaway is, is my soul rested in God. If your soul is rested in God, you will prosper in every area of your life according to God's ways. Second, worship that is uncorrupted by wealth. Faithful and true worship to God is the only way to manage wealth well. 
Now, we saw last week, and Pastor uh, Shen preached about the temple, uh, that Solomon built the temple, what was the temple, the central place of worship for the nation of Israel. And again, Solomon started well. His, his prayer of dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 shows his devotion to God and his conviction that God is central to the life and welfare of the nation. But from that magnificent prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8 to his descent into idolatry in 1 Kings chapter 11, it's a serious and hard lesson for us that worship cannot be taken for granted. We could start out with a full and sincere heart to love and worship God, but our hearts, our hearts to God can, can turn cold. And the fire of our worship can grow dim. First Kings chapter 11 clearly identifies Solomon's many foreign wives as his, the cause of his downfall to idolatry. But as we saw earlier, First Kings chapter 10 poses uncomfortable questions whether Solomon's exceedingly great wealth and riches, his accumulation of that wealth, whether it was here that the seeds of Solomon's downfall was already present. Now, we cannot know for sure since 1 Kings chapter 10 does not state this explicitly, but again, if you kind of read together with Deuteronomy chapter 17, it does raise a number of concerns. Once God's word is not obeyed completely, then the heart of our worship starts to diminish. Now, the New Testament is more explicit that earthly riches and wealth can draw us away from God. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, those of us who are believers, those of us here who are Christians, I think we can admit to one another that we find it very easy, right, to try to serve both God and money. You know, I worship God, attend church, give my tithes, but at the same time, I'm pursuing my ambitions to be rich. But Jesus says it can't happen, right? You just can't do it two and two together like that. We will come to love the one and hate the other. For example, you know, you might find that, you know, how come prayer time is very intrusive, you know, you're, you're busy, you're, you know, you're chasing after, you know, this career success or that promotion, you know, coming to church might be a chore, um, spending time alone with God, prayer, worship, you know, it's something that is interruptive. You will come to love the one and you despise the other. You, it always ends up that way, right? And often because riches, money, is so impactful and immediate, right? It's very practical. Money is so impactful and immediate. And while God's ways takes persevering faith, money can easily win over our attention and devotion. Take our devotion and attention away from God. How do we actually turn from a heart of worship to God into greed and idolatry? How does it actually happen that we can start out very well with God, 
but end up in idolatry, end up losing our true worship. Not many um, of the younger generation may know this author, Ernest Hemingway. Um, he was you know, a, a kind of well-known author in the last century. Uh, he had a, one interesting novel called The Sun Also Rises, and he had two characters talking. Uh, Bill was asking Mike about his money troubles, and the dialogue is, a, is a really a nice insight into our human experience. And so Bill goes to say, you know, he was asking Mike, how did you become bankrupt? Mike answered two ways, gradually and then suddenly. We, uh, we never seem to see trouble coming, right? But often when we look back, there, there's always some impending signs of trouble that may have been there for some time, right? Bad habits, um, hasty decisions, wrong motives, before finally the, the downfall comes. This may also describe our drift away from God. One compromise leading to another, one disobedience leading to another, one sin leads to another. Choosing dishonest means to get ahead. Skipping time with God for work and leisure. Again, it's easy to go for the Let's say you have an urgent you know, work assignment. That's immediate. That's very impactful, right? If you don't you know, answer to the boss tomorrow morning, you know, impact is there, immediate. But if we stay away from God, we don't pray, we neglect God's word, the effect is not so immediate. Right? You, know, you, you miss your prayer. You, know, you don't come to church to worship. You know, the impact is not there. It's, you know, everything seems to be normal. It's fine. And slowly, you know, one after the other. So we can regret prayer once or twice, several times, and then all together. How do we ever betray God and end up worshipping money or worthy ambitions? How do we actually do that? Gradually. And then suddenly. Worship God. Use money for God's kingdom. Don't worship money and try to use God for our worthy ambitions. Now, of course, you know, we can't actually make use of God, right? He's nobody's fool, right? We can't take advantage of God, but that has not stopped us from trying sometimes, right? Now, of course, that being said, we can pray, we should pray and petition God in every, any area of need in our life. We should pray for God's wisdom, His favour, His blessing, on our families, our relationships, our studies, our work life, our business. We absolutely need to do that. But God is God. We have to also remember that, right? We pray, we trust, we submit to God's ways and His timing. So our second takeaway then is following our big idea, how we handle wealth reflects how we worship God. Third is a wholehearted devotion. How we handle wealth is a wholehearted devotion to God's kingdom, right? As we sang from Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now here, I would like to um, switch gears a little and talk about the difference, how we approach wealth um, in the Old Testament and how we do it from the New Testament perspective. Now I've mentioned a few times now that Solomon's glory of wealth and honor 
was a blessing from God. Make no mistake about that, right? It does reflect the glory of God's dwelling place in the midst of his people, Israel. So the whole nation and kingdom in the Old Testament is the place where God's presence, his glory dwells with the nation centered on the temple. So for the Old Testament people of God, the blessings of wealth and riches are very much grounded in the here and now, you understand? Because God is, God's glory is dwelling in their midst. So God's blessing, his promise of blessing of wealth and honor is very here and now. God is already with us. But then Israel fell into sin and idolatry. So instead of standing out in righteousness, Israel became corrupt like the rest of the nations. Therefore, the whole system, the whole age, the world, dominated by sin, has become and is coming under God's judgment. God's response is to remake the heavens and the earth, new creation. This is where true abundant life and righteousness abound under the righteous rule of the king. It's as if in the midst of this world of sin and death, under judgment, God's new kingdom, his new creation, invades this world of sin and death. This is the kingdom that Jesus came to start. Now, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are called to live in this new kingdom. It's actually a, this time, this present time is actually an overlap, right? You, you have the old world of sin and death. Uh, the kingdom that Jesus came to start is already here, is present. We who believe in Christ, we are in the overlap. We are in this in-between times, right? The, 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 there's still the present world of sin and death, but we are already living in a new world of abundant life and righteousness. So the overlap started at the first coming of Christ, but the overlap will end at the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes again, this old world of sin and death is going to be done away with, and this new kingdom will go on to glory, into eternity. So realize that we are now in the in-between in between time, right? So our priorities, our values, our allegiances, they are all transformed to live in this new kingdom. Old world, sin and death, is still present, but it's passing away. It's under God's judgment, it's passing away. This old world, or the one on the left, includes wealth and riches in the present system. So the wealth and, and riches in the present is also technically under God's judgment, but we still use money to buy, sell, to trade, but the earthly riches are part of the old world that is passing away. They are only temporary. Of course, we all know that, but we have to remember that. So, although God still bless us, indeed, He still bless us with earthly provisions and wealth to live in this present world, we understand that they are temporary. We are called to use this worldly wealth to live for God's kingdom, but not to be engrossed in it because it will pass away. Our priority and attention 
is actually on God's eternal kingdom, which will never pass away. So you have something temporal, temporary, you have something eternal, you need to know where to pay attention to, right? To give priority to. So therefore, Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Jesus essentially says, don't store your treasure in what will waste away, but you need to store your treasures in heaven, in his heavenly kingdom, which will not pass away. And so, let me try to give you an example. Let's just say we have an imaginary country, global trade system, where we use, um, let's say, gold coins as a, a means of exchange, right? As currency, all right? In this world, there's no Bitcoin, no crypto, sorry. Just, just gold coins, all right? But let's just say, because of climate change or whatever, the, the gold metal that we're having is, is dissolving, is, is wasting away, it's dissolving slowly. It's still in use, but it's slowly rotting away. Thankfully, we have found a new metal, let's call it platinum, that is far more valuable than gold, and does not rot away. Now, we're still in the midst of mining for this platinum, and the government, let's just say, has not announced when we will start to use this new metal, this platinum, but we know it's going to be soon. And on that day, all the gold will no longer be valid as currency. So for the present moment, we still use gold rotting away, but we still use it to trade, to buy, to sell, to invest, to save enough of it. But we do not accumulate large amounts or to be overly engrossed in gold. Why? Because there is an expiry date, right, on that gold. To invest our time, our lives accumulating that gold will be extremely foolish, isn't it? What should we do instead? We use gold, still invalid but rotting away, we use that gold, to invest in platinum, uh, mining, refinery and storage. Why? Because that's going to be the coming standard. So you use what is rotting away gold to invest in platinum, factories, refinery, storage? I'm, just, it's a, I'm not giving you investment advice, right? I'm just giving... Yeah. Now, of course, this is not a perfect, very imperfect illustration, but um, here's the thing, right? We invest our lives in treasures in heaven that will not rot away. So what are these treasures? Our relationship with God, first of all. Um, who is our true wealth? In discipling others, uh, in missions, outreach, in, in helping the poor. This is our heavenly treasure that will last into eternity. Now, let's pull back and say, God knows we need worthy wealth and provisions to live in the present time. So he, he will definitely provide for us, but we need to have this God-fearing wisdom to be faithful stewards to manage this worthy wealth well. This is how Jesus puts it in Luke chapter 16, verse 9 onwards. I tell you, use worthy wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, the worthy wealth is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. 
if you have not been trustworthy in handling worthy wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So, um, it is not to say the Christian life, oh, you stay away from money, you don't touch money, you don't handle money. In fact, when we face with the Lord to give account of our lives, how we manage worthy wealth is one of the key things that we will be accountable for before God. So, I, I, I'd like to pray for all of us. I'd like to end this and, uh, at this time and just to pray for all of us. And I, I think we need to pray, first of all, that we are rested. Our souls are rested in God. If our souls are not rested in God, there is no prosperity, there's no abundance anywhere in our lives. But if our soul is rested in the Lord, then it will prosper in a way that God chooses. So um, I want to pray for us for that. But um, I'd like us to... Uh, in this time before the Lord, if we have put our wealth, our, our status, our ambitions above God, then um, you know, we, we, we want to repent. But if there's anyone here that has a financial constraint, we also want to pray that we have trust in God and that He will provide. Anyone else, anyone else here among us who have more than enough, praise God for that because it is God's blessing. But we want to pray that we will be generous in helping others for the sake of God's kingdom. And so I'll give you that time before the Lord that you look into the state of your soul and find your true wealth in God. And that we come to repentance in so many ways that we might have put our career our anxieties about wealth, our desire for wealth above our trust in God. Father, I pray that even as we come before you and open our hearts to you, there are many there might be many areas of our lives, the circumstances of our lives that cause us fear, anxiety. We are not rested in our souls. We are caught up, Lord, by worrying about the future, by struggling in, in the workplace, by pursuing riches that seem to be always outside our reach. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, teach us to sit at the feet of Jesus and find our rest in you. That if we are rested in you, then we know that all of your goodness, your provision, is already provisioned for us. We may not see it, we may not feel it, but we know that you are a good God. You are a God who takes care of the birds of the air who do not work, who do not have savings. You are the God who covers the grass of the field who grow today and are burned tomorrow. You cover 
the grass of the field with more glory and splendor than King Solomon. And because you are such a God, we rest in you. We rest in you by putting aside our anxieties, our fears. Lord, in areas where we have actually put our careers and our drive for success above that of God, above you, Lord, we repent and ask for your forgiveness. Father, we pray for those of us who are struggling financially. Teach us your way. Assure us of your provision. Surround us with people who can help us. For those of us, Lord, who have been blessed with more than enough, forgive us if we have used that to focus on our lifestyles instead of focusing on your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that whatever access and blessing you give us, make us into a blessing unto others for the sake of your kingdom, so that when we face, we stand in your presence face to face, it will be shown that our riches was in you. Our true wealth is in you. And so, Lord, we surrender our lives before you. We surrender our families before you. We surrender the future of our children and our children's children into your sovereign hands. We bless your name, for you are the one who provides for us. In Jesus' name, amen.